you see that? Yeah. All I have in this world is my balls, my word. The African anteater ritual. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Who <laughs> should tell that crowd? You don't have to take your clothes off. <laughs> Amanda Jones is no minor leaguer who will be swept off her feet at the touch of your amateur lips. Hold me, Mr. Butterfingers. Life moves pretty fast. You don't stop and look around once in a while. You could miss it. I love you guys. Hey, 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 it's the big master control program everybody's been talking about. I'm so sure. Fun Counter Guy, thanks for stopping by. Welcome back to another edition of A Fluorescent Decade on a Hill, our look back at the decade that was the 1980s. This time around, we're going to get a historical scoop on one of the inspirations for the film Scarface, the Marielle Boatlift. But first, some adolescent ramblings about summer vacations and school dances. Open up the limit. school church camp every year from the time I was 12 till I was 16 I believe um, it's in Bedford anyway I think I was it was when I was 15 because I went one one more year after this some of my friends had brought from another town had brought alcohol two bottles of Jack Daniels to be specific for communion yeah, well <laughs> you know we were at that age even though it was at church camp we anyway so the first night or two like the group of us guys went and got like a soft drink and drank part of it and put Jack Daniels in it. And on Wednesday or Thursday, the guy brought it, told me he was feeling guilty. And I told him, I'm feeling guilty too. I said, do you want me to get rid of it? And he said, yeah, I'd really appreciate that. And I'm like, all right, don't worry about it. I'll grab both bottles and I'll go throw them in the woods. Because the way the campground was set up, there was like a cul-de-sac with all the guys' cabins. And then the road went a different direction and the girls' cabins were back a different road. Well, behind the boys' cabins, there was a woods, and there was, to the far left, there was houses way, way over there. But there was an open field, and it was along a woods. Uh, my plan was to grab both bottles, walk back that woods line until I, the cabins got small enough that no one could see me, and then I was going to chuck them in the woods. So I went into the cabin, I put both bottles in my shorts, and put my shirt over it. And uh, they were the, not the square ones, but they were more of a flat kind mm-hmm. so anyway i hit the door open and i'm like oh no so i look and it's my cousin brian and i tell him what i'm going what i'm doing because he was had also drank with us and he also felt guilty and he goes i'll help you so he has a bottle i have a bottle we take off it's almost sunset i mean it's, it's you know the sun's going down it's in the tree line and we walk down this tree line at the edge of this woods really far i mean the cabins look really small by the time we stopped well, and we it made a little bend, so we were not in sight of the cabins at, at all. So we're like, this is far enough. So he takes his bottle, he chucks it. Um, he chucks it far into the woods. I go here. You can throw further than me. You chuck this one. So I hand him mine. He chucks it into the woods. We walk back. Go to the campfire service. Next morning we get up. We go to breakfast. We go to the morning service. During the morning service, there was this uh, counselor there that was a Vietnam vet. And he's giving a service, and he's talking, and he says, Last night, God led me to go read my Bible in the woods. 
And while I was sitting in the woods, two boys threw a fifth of Jack Daniels over my head. I got white as a ghost and almost threw up right there in the middle of church. He didn't call us out, but he left it open that if we wanted to come and talk to him, we could. Did you? I didn't. I think Brian did. I remember going to this church camp up at Bedford, Indiana, and it was something Creek. I can't remember the name of it. But I went like maybe four or five years in a row. And it, but they had pretty nice cabins. It was like concrete cabins. You know, it wasn't like tent living or anything. Anyway, the boys had their own part of the camp. And the girls had their other part of the camp. You know, every summer I'd get a crush on like someone. And, and we would always go over at night. And I can't even remember why we went over there. But sometimes the leader of our... There was always like an adult in our cabin, and sometimes the adults would participate going over to the girls' cabins late at night. What would you guys do? Like <laughs> holler at them? No, I think we would like maybe put signs up or something like, you know, hey, we were here. Or oh. just, I mean, it wasn't like a panty raid or nothing, you know, <laughs> like a church. You know, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> I mean, we never went into their cabins. It was always like... You know, did something funny or something. I don't know. It was just silly. Well, they were not there? No, they were there sleeping. Oh, okay. You could you could see inside the cabins because they had these little doors that would swing up next to the beds that had like a, like a screen. And, you know, you get some air during the night or whatever. I remember one summer I had this crush on a girl, and I guess her parents were hippies or something. But her, her name in real life was Star. Oh, man. I really f- fell in love with her and stuff, and, you know, we had a little church camp crush or whatever. And then I remember this one. It was, like, maybe the next to last one I went to, There's this girl. She just absolutely had a crush on me for some reason. You know, I'm just a stupid kid, you know, and I, I never really had a girlfriend or anything like that. And one night, you know, she just kept trying to, you know, g- hang around me and just always be in our group, you know, whoever I'm talking to. She would just kind of, you know, follow me around and mm-hmm. stuff. And then I remember it was like getting towards the last two or three nights of us being there. And she came to me one night. She was just crying her eyes out. She was, why don't you like me? And I was just like, I didn't even know what to say. I just like was stammering and stuttering. <laughs> just like, I was like, I don't really like anyone, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think this was the summer after Star. Mm-hmm. So there wasn't really anyone I was really interested in stuff. And I just couldn't believe it. You know, there's someone that, that could be that crazy or whatever and we never really talked a whole lot you know and i guess you know i joked around with people and i always thought i about how the groucho marx quote about any club that would allow me to be a member i wouldn't want to be a part of mm-hmm. and at that age i was so insecure if a girl showed any interest and it was rare yeah that i thought too. man something's wrong with this girl <laughs> exactly she's, she's got some mental health issues. yeah i don't want to be with her because <laughs> she wants to be with me yeah, exactly and for someone to come up to you and just like, she's just crying her eyes out. Why don't you like me or whatever? And just like, what do you say? And she was the kind of girl that like wrote my name Aww. like a hundred times in her Aww. notebook and stuff. That's and so just, sweet. It is.
I, I would go to church camp. I, that was one of my highlights of the year, really. Where would you go? It was somewhere up north. And it seems like the one we went to was always on the border of Illinois because there was a real high point you could go and you could see over into Illinois. Of course, I got treated bad in grade school. Like People picked on me. I was not at the, at the bottom, and but there was a couple people below me. But at church camp, I had a little bit more clout. I wasn't treated as bad. All I right. was still low in the food chain, but... So I really looked forward to it. Plus, they you know played sports and had you know treasure hunts and all that kind of stuff. In the high school years, things started to change a little bit. I started to get, get a little bit better about talking to people, and I made friends with this guy named Ernie. I regret that I can't remember his last name because I would like to find him. One of the funniest guys I ever met in my life, and he introduced me to the Cure. He had every one of their cassettes and all that, and so that's because of did him. You, did you dress like that? No, 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 no. He wasn't goth at all. He was okay. just a little skinny guy, but and so funny, and a lot of self-deprecating humor. And uh, this was before The Cure got big with like Fashionation Street and all that stuff. But um, every year in the high school years, if I remember correctly, at, on Monday, we would kind of scope things out. We'd see girls, and we... So we're going to help each other get the girl that we wanted. So Monday, you kind of scope them out. Tuesday, you decide who you're going to go for. And Wednesday, do nothing. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. That's what happened. We, but we would try to help each other talk to the other girl, and it never worked out. It right. was always, they, they didn't want to have anything to do with us. Right. And by the end of the camp, we would just like give up and have fun and, and just make each other laugh and, and all that. But the senior year, uh, our last year, I remember we both chose a girl and I chose some little tiny thing, and she was really cute, and he always wore like a ball cap, kind of a tomboy kind of girl. Yeah. And he chose this girl named Jennifer, who was very sweet. So he went to talk to this little girl for me, and I went to talk to Jennifer for him. And it actually didn't work out pretty well, kind of. And so they agreed to sit with us at chapel time, you know, the church service at night. Right. But the tiny girl just was not interested in me at all. And so, but Jennifer was very sweet, and so she at least showed a little interest in, in Ernie. And I kept going to talk to her for Ernie, because Ernie was so shy. Right. And uh, I, I started to kind of like her, but that's off limits, you know, it's your, your friend's yeah. thing. So I remember on Thursday night, because remember we leave on Friday noon or early morning or something. So Thursday night, I remember Ernie coming to me and said, listen, I know you and Jennifer like each other, so you should go be with her. I was like, oh, no, oh, no. He said, no, no, you really should. This is your, you need to jump on this chance. And I was like, are you sure? <laughs> For one night only. Well, and what, what does that mean to, you know, a high school kid in Indiana? But exactly. I was like, okay. And so I went and found her. You know, we had maybe a couple hours before lights out or whatever you call it. So we just walked around. I don't think we held hands or anything. We just talked and talked and talked. And she was so sweet. And uh, uh, we promised to write each other. You know, that's always a thing. Oh, and, yeah. and uh of course, generally, no one ever does, but she did write, and I wrote her back, and at that time, I was way into U2, so when she would write me a letter, she would cut out the pictures of, of a U2 and put them in there, and I'd do something for whatever she was interested in, you know? Right. And then we were supposed to meet at a church function somewhere in Indiana that they were having another youth function. It wasn't a camp, but it was like a weekend thing. Right. And so uh, we agreed to go to this thing, and I went, and I never saw her, and I was really heartbroken. And uh, I thought, you know, is yet another girl who doesn't really like me. It's just being nice to me. And so I got a letter from her. And she was 
apologizing all over herself. She's, and she was crying and she, uh, something. Her brother was supposed to have taken her and something didn't work out. Mm. And then I went to college and I think we wrote a little bit past that, but it just kind of died off, you know. Well, how long did the letters last? For a while, like maybe a year. No kidding. I, I don't remember exactly, but I kept them for a while. That's a long time. I even wrote a song about her when I was in a band called My Sweet Jennifer. And um, I will always be f- grateful to her because she was so kind and very encouraging and uh i'd never really had anything like that before and uh, so i you know it was my first little boost of confidence i guess you know i always wonder where she's where she's at today Nearly half the state of the people in our church would go to this church camp. So there would be a, a real wide variety of, of kids there. And I, and I met so many interesting people. And that's how we met Ernie. Yeah. The, the funniest story about Ernie I ever could remember was he told me that he was not going to go to the bathroom all week. <laughs> I guess he had a phobia of public toilets. <laughs> well, in summer camp, toilets were... Probably right around... Probably like, no doors. Well, that... And they had the same cleanliness as a gas station bathroom. You're crapping in a hole, and you can hear it splash down in this hole in the ground. I mean, Flies coming out, and it smells awful. So he tells me that, and I just think it's hysterical. Like, what are you, not going to eat all week or something? <laughs> like, I don't know how you could do this. I mean, I think he made it to Wednesday. I just remember looking over at him, and he was white as a ghost. And I said, are you okay? And he's... I'm going to have to go to the bathroom. And I was like, we'll go. And he goes, and we were in the middle of a congregational setting where it was, it was quiet. There was a bunch of us, hundreds of us sitting there. And it was, he felt, I'm sure, extra awkward. It's not like you could slip out the back. So the whole place looks at you while you get up and leave. So he, he gets up reluctantly and, and, and kind of makes a beeline for the, I guess, the barracks. A sophomore year of band camp, a couple guys decided that they were going to make something called sour mash. I'd never heard of it, but I guess it's where you you soak corn and sugar and I don't know stuff in water. And I was not a drinker. I was a I was a good boy, so to speak, in high school. And so they brought it on one of the days, and we drank a bunch of it. And let me tell you, that might have been the first time I would consider myself drunk because that stuff was crazy. I won't say hallucinogenic, but it, it, it just the equilibrium was crazy. We had to march that night. It was terrible, and I'll never drink that kind of stuff, homemade stuff again, because it it was it was kind of frightening as well. Because I didn't know what was going on. I was, you know, 16 years old and didn't know what the heck was going on. It was the summer of my my senior year. Me and a few guys went down to Florida. We went to Panama City. It was actually my first time of actually, you know, going away to Florida, going anywhere with my buddies to to, to have a good time. But so uh, we were down in Panama City. I don't tan very well. As a matter of fact, I don't tan at all. <laughs> that day we got there, we decided to 
to start the, the festivities and we were sitting on the beach and lo and behold I, I ended up falling asleep. Oh no. And now, uh, had you drank or anything? Yes. Oh okay. yes. And uh, you know, I was eighteen and invincible and didn't need any sunscreen at the time. Uh-huh. So I fell asleep on my side and I woke up and I and the side of my face is just I mean, it's just pounding. It, it hurts so bad. Wow. And and then the, some of the guys are looking at me like, oh, my gosh, you are so sunburnt on, on the, the, the left side of your face. And I think you think about it, I just, we just went back to the hotel and uh, got a shower, got dressed, ate, and went out cruising the strip there in Panama City. And we ended up meeting uh, uh, so, so some girls down there. Next thing I know, I could feel like the side of my face felt wet. It felt like like I was sweating, like sweat or something was just running profusely off of me. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, this, the, the girl that I was talking to, she just stops talking to me. And she's looking at my face, and, and she has this disgusting look on her face. And she's like, oh my gosh, ooh. And I'm like, whoa. And, and what had happened is that the side of my face had blistered, and all the blisters were starting to burst. Oh my goodness. And, and Wow. It, and it's all just like running down the side of my face. <laughs> so so needless to say the girls left us. Did you get their phone number? No. And and all my buddies like, oh my gosh, we, how were you how were you supposed to get any girls when we got some creature here with stuff coming out of his face? And so needless to say they sent me back to the hotel room. Oh man. <laughs> so, so I had to go back to my hotel room. As a matter of fact I spent probably two two more days at, at the uh, at the hotel room just, wow. just trying to put in salve and stuff. After I felt like going back out in the sun, we were out one day, and uh, we drove by this booth or little place on the side of that said uh, that they rented Ninja, you know, the Kawasaki Ninjas that mm. were kind of coming big at the time, and I'd never ridden a motorcycle in my life. Mm. But but for some reason, I thought, hey, I, I, I can ride a Kawasaki Ninja. So we pull in there, do the paperwork, give them money, and, and, and all the other guys had got their bikes and, and, and took off. Well... I got on mine trying to take off. Now keep in mind, I've never driven a motorcycle in my life. I kept trying to take off. And kept, I kept trying to find the pedals. I, I, I had no idea how to operate the clutch. I kept killing it. Uh-huh. Kept killing it. And then finally the guy comes over. He's like, he goes, man, you're going to kill yourself. He goes, hop off. I'll put you on something more your speed. <laughs> so I'm standing there waiting on him to come back. In the meantime, my, the three buddies that I, that I was with, they were going up and down the road waiting on me. <laughs> he brings me back a red Honda Spree. And so I, I hop on it, and, <laughs> and I take off, and my buddies had pulled over the side of the road waiting on me. And, and the looks on their faces when I pulled up on my Honda Spree and they're on their Kawasaki Ninjas, it, uh, it, it was priceless. But needless to say, I got left behind again. <laughs> And, uh, you know, they were out trying to pick up girls and, and give them rides. But uh-huh. funny thing is that no girls want to ride with me on my Honda Spree. So. Oh, I don't know why. <laughs> I, I can't imagine. He had a basket and a little bell. <laughs> Do you remember those
One thing that did happen at church camp is uh, always like the nighttime because, you know, we'd always get to hang out and, you know, we'd play basketball or whatever. And we was hanging out and I was talking to some guys or something and uh, there were some adults with us when I was all talking. And all of a sudden, there's this literally great ball of flames shooting across the sky. And everyone was thinking, oh my God, that's like a meteorite or something. I mean, it was huge. I mean, just unbelievably big, shooting across the sky. And we were all, all sitting there looking at this thing like, oh my God. And then, it, you know, it went over the horizon and disappeared. And I guess the next morning, um, one of the adults went and got a newspaper. And it was a satellite that was burning up in space. And it landed somewhere in some field in Illinois. Wow. And it was streaking across the sky. I'll just never forget that. I remember another thing, one of the constant friends that I would see every year at church camp, I won't say his name, we'll call him Big D, we'll say, he was very obese, and he was a nice guy, and it was interesting how we became friends, because, you know, people made fun of me, but one thing I could cut on other people back, and sometimes I could be almost crueler than they had been to me in the first place, so I was super skinny, and if a fat person was mean to me, you know, I... You lit into him. Oh, yeah, you know, I knew what was going to make him upset, Again, I look back as an adult, I, I realize how it's not right and mean. And But this guy was really, really nice, and, and uh, it seemed like a lot of big people were bullies. And so maybe that's why I had such a low opinion of, of big people. But he was really nice, and so we got along real well. They had one night of the week, it was probably Thursday nights, when they had skits and mm. talent. You know, people would sing or do something. Yeah, and so that. he was just like the rest of us. He wanted a girlfriend real bad. He, you know, he wanted to be popular or well-liked, but you know, he had his weight and, and that always put him in a short bust him, as they say. So he was going to be in a skit. The way I remember it is that he was really looking forward to it, that he could show he was funny. And so uh, Amy Grant, the Christian pop singer, had a song called Fat Baby. And it was kind of in reference to, if I remember it correctly, uh, St. Paul had said, you know, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. And when I was an adult, you know, I left those childish things behind. Mm. And so this was kind of a song that was somewhat critical of Christians who never really grow out of a certain stage. They just stay at the baby level of, of their faith. It's almost like a novelty song, like a funny song. He's just a fat little baby. He wants his bottle and it's only maybe. He sampled solid food once or twice. So, Big D, I don't know if it was his idea or what, but he agreed to wear what looked like a giant diaper, and he had a big jug of milk. So he laid on the stage. I, I don't think he had a shirt on. Oh, no. And had, you know, the what looked like a diaper, and he had the big jug, and he just, you know, basically flailed around like a baby on the stage <laughs> while someone sang this song. I think it was really bad, and I think it didn't go like he had planned. It didn't make him popular. People laugh for a minute, but I think it, it made people really uncomfortable because right. we were laughing at his expense. But I will tell you, probably the prettiest girl at church camp, I don't want to say her name. She had a very unique name, and it's a name you'll never hear anywhere else, and I, I wish I could say it, but uh, he really was in love with her every year. That was the girl he chose, and you know, it never seemed to go well. But the, finally, at the very end, she agreed to go out with him, and they ended up getting married. 
Are you serious? Yeah, I'm serious, yeah. Wow. Yeah, so I don't know what happened to him or her, and I, I hope they're happy, but I, I'd never forget that. Like, wow, he wanted her from day one, and he, wow. he finally wore her down. Wore her down. <laughs> Took 12 years, but... <laughs> Here comes this summer. I had started a new job, and um, at this point, I'm a little bit older. I'm 20-something or whatever, And but at 20-something, I'm still, I'm 5'9 and 135 pounds. I am not a big guy. One of the other guys that worked there, his name was Scott, and he and I are really good friends. We go to church together now, but at the time, we were big rivals. We could not, we were a couple of young hotheads who thought we knew it all, and all the stuff that I knew was different than all the stuff that he knew, and one of us had to be right, and one of us had to be wrong, right? But the problem is, he's 6'2", and like 280, and, and built like a mountain. I mean, solid muscle, but apparently I wasn't smart enough to realize that, you know, 5'9", 135, and 6'2", and 280, it's just, that's not a good match for me. Mm-hmm. We were working at this gymnastics place, and he coached a group of high school cheerleaders, and um, I was a women's team coach or whatever. But before the day started, I had some responsibilities, like janitorial responsibilities. I had to vacuum certain areas of the gym on particular days of the week. And this particular day of the week, I was supposed to uh, vacuum what is normally the cheer floor. His high school squad was coming in for a makeup lesson, and it was early in the day, like 2 o'clock or 2.30. So there's nothing else going on in the gym. And there were three other spring floors or whatever in there, and I'm vacuuming. Per my boss, the guy who owned the place, I'm vacuuming the cheer floor. And he comes in, he said, hey, you're going to have to stop. I've got this cheer squad. And to me, it seems reasonable for him to just use one of the other spring floors because nobody else is here. I understand why you need the cheer floor, you know, at 5 o'clock because that's the only space available to you. But 2.30, who gives a crap? Use one of the other floors. So I just say, go use one of the other floors, man. I'm, a va- I'm vacuuming. He's like, I need this. This is the cheer floor and I've got a cheer squad. I said, you don't need it. There's... T- Two other floors. There's a floor there. There's a floor there. Go use one of those. Mm-hmm. Now we're getting belligerent. This guy gets up in my face. Well, he gets his chest up in my face because that's how <laughs> big he is. And he's like, do we need to take this outside? And I turn off the vacuum and say, do we? Somebody with cooler heads might have even been uh, your sister at that point because we were dating. Gets in between us and calms us down. And eventually Scott uses the other floor. Well, anyway, me and this guy can't stand each other. But my roommate at the time, his name is Chad, is friends with both of us. And one of the things I enjoy doing at this point in my life is river rafting. You remember you and I went on a right. on a trip together. So Chad and I have a river rafting trip planned. We're going to leave at 6 in the morning and go raft this leg of the Harpeth River. He tells me the night before, hey, I invited Scott to join us. And I'm like, son of a... But I got enough equipment for the three of us. This will be fine. So 5.55 comes... And Chad's not stirring, so I knock on his door, and I'm like, hey, man, come on. Scott's going to be here any minute. And Chad lifts his head up the pillow and goes, man, I ain't going. I'm sleeping. Next thing I know, the doorbell's ringing, and it's Scott. Like, I can't stand this guy. He can't stand me, right? And he's here to river raft. Well, I'm going to go river rafting, so fine. I'll go with Scott. So Scott and I leave, and we're going through this leg, this absolutely gorgeous leg of the Harpeth River. And... On the left is this wide open like plain with trees. And on the right is, it's not quite a mountain, but it's a very steep, very large hill. And I'm talking like 60 or 70 degree incline on the hill. with And it's 100 feet, 
200 feet tall. And then at the very top, there's 30 foot of rocky overhang. So it's coming out at an at a opposite incline. And you can just see this. It's, it's like February, so the leaves are off the tree. So you can see everything. And I'm like, this is gorgeous. And I turn to Scott and I say, hey, one of these days, I want to climb that overhang and get up and just see the view. And that's just casual conversation, right? Like, this would be a thing I'd like to do. And he says, well, what about now? As kind of sort of this bravado sort of challenge, like, there's no way you're going to do this. You're some kind of And I'm like, well, all right, I accept your challenge. And I said, yeah, what about now? So we tie off the rafts and we climb up this stuff. And again, this the hill is so steep that you really have to climb up the hill on all fours. You can't just stand upright and wow. walk and there's and it's lined with trees like a forest and when you get to the top of this overhang it's probably 20 feet tall and it comes out this way and we don't have any rock climbing gear no nothing but we're a couple of 20 year old macho bsers right right i would think the hardest thing would be to get down right well part of the bravado is you're not thinking that far ahead i'll get there with <laughs> okay. the getting down so we climb this thing and we get to the top and we're like stoked, like the adrenaline's pumping. We both think we're the toughest guy in the universe right now. And we're overlooking some of the most beautiful scenery you will ever see. The winding river, the forest, and you can see it all again because the, tr- the trees have no leaves and whatever. And what we see is what you just mentioned. How in the hell are we going to get down? There's 20 foot of overhang plus a 200 foot hill that we eventually look, and it looks like maybe four or five miles of hiking one way will lead us down a less steep thing, right. and then we can walk along the bank of the river and get back to our boat another four or five miles. I'm not in the mood for no nine-mile <laughs> hike, right? So I walk to the edge of the cliff, and about eight feet, maybe ten, from the edge of the cliff is the top of a tree. And I look back, yeah, yeah, this oh, is coming. I look back at Scott and said. Hey, man, do you think I could make that? And he's looking at me and looking at this tree and going, no way this guy jumps. And he goes, oh, yeah, I think you could make that easy. And then I turn around one more time and I say, do you think that tree will hold me? And now his eyes get big and he's going, wait a minute, this guy's serious. He's like, yeah, I'm pretty sure it'll hold you there. Because, you know, it's the top of the tree. Mm-hmm. I don't want the freaking yeah. thing to fall over. For folks who never climbed a tree, it gets thinner the, the yeah. higher you go. yeah. He goes, yeah, I I think it'll hold you. And I just, I take a deep breath. I turn around and I jump. I jump for this tree that's eight feet away from this thing. And I don't want to rack my boy parts. So I don't grab it with my arms and legs, just my arms, which is a little bit of a mistake because the momentum swung me around the backside and my hands go slip, slip, and I'm hanging on by my fingernails. And did it tear your skin up? It did, but then I wrap my legs around the tree, I shimmy all the way down to the bottom of this tree, and now I'm jumping up and down, calling him every name in the book. Mm -hmm. I'm like, come on, you big fat (laughs) I did it, you gotta do it. And this guy's like, what? You know, again, he's two Kens, but what choice does he have? The skinny guy down there is calling him a because he challenged me essentially to do this, not believing I would, and I did. So... He sees my experience of nearly falling because I only grab with my arms Mm -hmm. and decides to grab arms and legs. And this guy power slams his nutsack (laughs) right right into the tree. Have you ever seen the cartoon where like the wolf's eyes 
like bug out of his yeah. head and goes, Auga! <laughs> I swear, from 20 feet below him, I could see his eyes bug out of his head and hear, Auga! when his nuts smash into that tree. But he doesn't have the problem of nearly falling. He shimmies down, and to this day, we're best of buddies because of that shared experience. We each had like this moment of like mutual respect like uh-huh. hey man this guy's not so bad he's willing to jump off of a cliff to the top of a tree and yeah this guy's willing too so uh-huh. i guess we can be pals scott has no children now but you know <laughs> we would suck in place and i dance all days we were cool. so yeah senior prom i had recently broke up with a girl who was probably a sophomore. So going into prom, you know, the, the month or two before prom, I, I didn't have a date to take the prom. Um, and I was working at Save-A-Lot, the small little grocery store here in town, which is no longer there. And uh, there's a girl there that I was friends with. Uh, she was actually out of school. She had graduated the year before. So that would have made her about 19 or so. Her name was Connie. And uh, we were just friends working at the store. And, uh, in fact, she was dating a huge guy at the time that probably would smash me <laughs> if he wanted to. But for some reason, they were in between, so I asked her if she'd go to prom with me. And uh, she said, yeah, I think mainly just as friends. She wanted to go and party and meet her friends and stuff, and same thing with me. So we went as friends, but uh, my current, well, that's not current. good, does it? My current wife, current my wife. only wife I've ever had, also went to prom. We were friends at the time. She was going with a guy, and they had just broke up. She was in the same situation as I was going into prom. Just got out of a relationship. But she went stag with some of her friends. So she was there by herself. I went there with a girl, a very attractive girl, but we were just friends. So there was really probably nothing really going to materialize there. <laughs> And, you know, you go get your picture taken. Mm -hmm. So I got my picture taken with my date, Connie. Basically, that was the last we saw of each other. She ran off with her friends. I ran off with my friends. And so I started hanging out with Charity. At the prom? At the prom. I asked her to go study with me at prom. Whoa! And I went back and got pictures with her. So I think I was the only guy (laughs) at prom who got pictures taken with two chicks. Wow. I was a stud. (laughs) Me and Charity left prom and... Our big, I guess you'd call it our first official date, we hung out at Oakdale Playground on the swing set. <laughs> that, was my, that was my prom night, hanging out at the Oakdale Playground, which is our elementary school. Yeah, cute romantic stuff. I remember yeah. she was wearing my uh, tuxedo jacket. Oh. Yeah, oh, I'm such a sweet guy. Did y'all make out, like in the jungle gym? <laughs> no. Yeah, did you guys make out? I'm not, no, I don't kiss and tell. No, come on. <laughs> no, no, not at that time, no. Oh, you're a gentleman. I'm a gentleman, yes. It took a while. Before, uh, things got a little more heated. My wife and I, we went, I went to her, I was a senior and she was a junior, Teresa. And so her junior prom, she got a phone call that night from, or was that day, from the person who had actually made her dress and she wasn't done so she calls the day of the dress and the dress was not yet complete so of course that was a very traumatizing time for a 16 year old girl Uh and um, they got the dress to her and it wasn't finished quite right 
So was it not finished in like a sexy kind of way? Well, like no, way revealing? well, I'd get to that because the thing was when we went to the dance, she couldn't raise her arms up because I guess like under the armpit area, I don't know if it wasn't sewn all the way, but when we would dance, she was basically kind of, it was kind of a robotic dance because she couldn't raise her arms up because it was going to, might have shown some stuff underneath there. <laughs> the robot was pretty big back then. Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> but oh gosh, that was a very traumatizing time. Next year for prom went a lot smoother, except for when my wife got out of the car. Because I would have gone out and opened the door, but I guess she got out quicker than I did. And she was shutting the door and then shut her dress in the door and had grease on it. But that wasn't near as bad as doing the robot <laughs> prom dance and she actually after that prom she threw that I'm pretty sure that dress either was thrown away or burnt but it was not a keepsake for sure that first that junior year my very first dance I went to was actually my senior high school prom from the moment I picked up the girl who was the lucky girl the, the lucky girl was Joni. I pull up, I pick her up at her house. The very first thing she tells me is that mom said it's okay that if I'm not having a good time that I can call some of my friends and then you can drop me off at the victory. That's when the when the victory was the dance type. Now was the prom in Evansville? The prom was at the gold room at the executive inn. In, in, in Evansville. In Evansville, okay. yeah. And so I'm like, oh great, this is, the night is just going to be stellar. Well, let's back up. Now, did you ask her out, this girl? I did ask her out. And you were friends with her before, or you just... Well, we kind of kind of in the same circle of or group of people, I guess. Uh-huh. When you asked her, did she say, well, well, let me get back to you, or did she make a face, or she's like, oh, yeah, or... Yeah, yeah she was like, sure, yeah, sounds okay. good. And, 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 you know, she was a freshman at the time, and, oh. I, and, and I, was a, I was a senior, but yeah. we all kind of hung around the same people that went to the same parties and okay. stuff. Anyway, she she acted enthusiastic at the time. Okay, but uh, not sure what happened between that time and right. the time I picked her up. But uh, did you get her a nice corsage or? I got her a lovely corsage, okay. and I, I actually and, and I kind of look like uh, Harry and Harry and Lloyd from Dumb and Dumber. I had I had a stark white uh, tuxedo with uh, with a light blue cummerbund and <laughs> bow tie. And white shoes, <laughs> looking rather dapper. Yeah, we're, I, I'm driving mom's mom and dad's car. They just got the car not long ago. It was a uh, it was a big boat looking car. It was a, it was a Chrysler Fifth Avenue New Yorker. Uh, so I, I'm in the parking lot waiting to park at the executive end for the prom. All of a sudden, car car from me puts on the reverse lights and backs right up into me, crushed in the front grill. Oh man, we, we go in the prom, we dance. I mean, did you guys get the guy's insurance number and all that stuff? Or? Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Right after the dance was over, took her immediately home. She said, just, just take me home. And so I took her home, and uh, <clears throat> instead of uh, me moping around and, and, and going, going back home, I said, well, yeah, I think I'm, because there, there, there was a party we had planned to go to. Uh, so I said, yeah, I think I'm still going to go to that party. Mm-hmm. And so this party was in the middle of nowhere, of course, like the many parties in, in Boonville, out in probably some coal bank or spoils or something but turning off the highway to get onto the rock road to go to the party was was a little bit of a drop off and uh, as I turned to go into the gra- off to the, the gravel road I, I heard something it sounded like a loud clunk or something I didn't think anything about it so uh, went to the party had a good time went home next morning comes 
all of a sudden my, my door flies open. My bedroom door flies open. And Dad's like says, what the hell did you do to my car? I was like, well, Dad, you know about the about the grill in the front part. You, Could know, you had called his your yeah, parents? Yeah, and I said, you, know, you knew about that. And he's, he's like, no, get out of bed. So I got out of bed and went out in the garage. And I looked at the car, seen the grill, which, which I knew. And then... There, there was a chrome piece that was attached to the, the bottom of the car that ran the entire length of, of the car. I, I guess whenever I turned off onto the gravel road, it, it, the, the, the asphalt grabbed that chrome piece in the front part of the car and peeled it all the way back. So it looked like a, it looked like a curly cue, a pig's tail. Wow. And it was still just kind of flopping there in the garage. <laughs> My first prom that I went to was, I wasn't crazy about her. She wasn't crazy about me. And we went and we just kind of basically tolerated one another. And I remember I had to fork out all this money for this nice restaurant. And then we went and got to the prom and basically just kind of separated. And it was like a total waste of time, money, renting the tux, the whole thing. And went home. And looking back at those pictures, it's just so stupid. Why did you do it? Because it was like everybody wanted to go to the prom. It was one of those, you know, who who you going to the prom with? Hey, you want to be part of the crowd. Right. And, hey, yeah, I'm going to the prom with We're, so-and-so. The prom with my wife was the best one, hands down. Now, um, you had already graduated high school. Yes. And then as she, like I said, I was, I'm way uh, older than her. So I went to uh, went to her prom, and it was good. It, and that was the best one. Um, but I never I never was a dancer. I Like, I can't. I despise dancing in public like if i dance it's literally for like our special song and i'll just stand there basically put my hands around her hips and just stand there right. <laughs> and she'll kind of move me back and forth like a stand-up <laughs> mannequin you know so it's kind of because i just i hate dancing i could a funny story about dancing everybody knows i've hated to dance ever since i was a kid i've just hated it i just felt so silly and out of place even from you know five years old well, i was probably all of maybe eight nine Christmas Eve, and I was at my grandparents' house on my dad's side. Everybody's getting ready to open up presents. And I remember my cousin, she goes over, and, and there was music playing or something. They're like, Derek, dance. You know, we want to see you dance. And I'm like, I don't want to dance. And they're like, come on, dance. I'm like, I don't want to. And she gets on the phone. She's like, I'm going to call Santa Claus tell him not to bring you anything. Dang. I'm like, no. She's like, I'm dialing right now. And so I had to get up there and like do this awkward dance in front of my whole family. And it was just so stupid. And looking back on it, it's like, God, I got played like a fool. But anyway, I so, pranked, pranked my kids many a time. So, so Santa came that year? Yeah, he ended up coming. Since I danced. Yeah, he yeah. showed up the next morning. So. We can dance. We can dance. Everybody's taking the child. They all sound the same to me. That son of a bitch Castro is shitting all over us. Send this bastard to Freedom Town. Let them take a look at him. One of the more iconic films of the 1980s was Scarface, starring Al Pacino and Michelle Pfeiffer and directed by Brian De Palma. Although the film is a piece of fiction written by then-cocaine addict Oliver Stone, it did include some actual historical fact, particularly the state of Miami, just after what later became known as the Mariel Boatlift. To give us some sense of events leading up to the boatlift, which occurred between April and October of 1980, 
the then U.S. President Jimmy Carter, who often prided himself for thinking he could win over the worst human rights abusers of the world, had made a deal with Cuba's dictator Fidel Castro, in which travel restrictions would be eased between the two nations. With the Cuban tourism industry totally controlled by the communist government, American dollars spent in the country would give the socialist dictatorship a much-needed influx of capital. In return, Fidel Castro promised, at some point in the future, to release over 3,000 political prisoners. What Castro would ultimately do, though, was to backstab the United States, which would add to the mounting list of other world powers that seemed to take advantage of President Carter's naivete up until his election defeat by Ronald Reagan later that year. To help us understand what exactly the Mariel Boatlift was, is BabaluBlog.com's editor, Alberto de la Cruz, a Cuban-American Miami resident whose family was directly affected by the events depicted in Scarface. She's on fire, and she burns through the night at the speed of light. The Marielle Boatlift was, was basically, uh, it all started with the, uh, with the Peruvian embassy. What happened in the Peruvian embassy in Havana was uh, a few Cubans jumped a fence into the Peruvian embassy in Havana and uh, asked for political asylum. As more people, as word spread out on the street that day, that people were getting into the Peruvian embassy and, and, get, and getting asylum, people started just flocking to the Peruvian embassy and jumping in. And, and uh, as a matter of fact, uh, my, and I don't want to get too complicated here, my cousin's wife's father. <laughs> too late, complicated. One of my cousins, his wife's, her father, told me the story once. She she had come in Marielle, and, and so did he. But he basically had told his wife, take the kids and go to the Peruvian end, and I'll meet you there. And he drove, he had a work van, and he drove the work van through the, through the fence to get in. Wow. They all got in, and then basically the way they got out was the boat loop, because then you had hundreds of people sitting inside the courtyard of the Peruvian embassy and they just couldn't handle it. And what ended up happening was they said, well, they can leave. And then Fidel Castro said, well, uh, if you want to leave, you can leave. Someone come pick you up. And then Cubans here were like, we'll go get our family members. And then they said, well, if you're going to come, you got to take the people, everybody that, that uh, we're going to give you. So my father and my uncle went to go get their, my aunt, who was the last remaining uh, sibling that was still in, in Cuba. And um, they took a boat. It was like a 40-foot boat to, to Marielle to pick them up. They came back with a total of 68 passengers on that boat. 16 of them were family members. The rest, they had no idea who they were. <laughs> they were just... You want to take the family members, you got to take these people with you. Mm-hmm. I have a, another cousin from the other side of my family, from my mother's side, who went over to pick up his his family. And he basically, the whole ride back from Cuba was him standing on, on the ladder to the flybridge of the boat with a big giant wrench beating the people back that they had picked up because they wanted to take over the boat because these people had just been taken out of a psychiatric ward of a hospital, of a, of a prison or something. And they were just insane. Mm-hmm. And 
it's you know for three hours i i stood on that ladder just you know anytime anybody tried to get up i'd swing the wrench at him <laughs> because if not they were going to take over the boat throw them off the boat and god knows what happens right. to them but that's that's basically what happened so you had a bunch of cubans uh from uh, from the U.S. that grabbed their boats and headed to Mariel to pick up their family members, but they were forced to bring other people with them, and that's how Fidel Castro cleared out the prisons, cleared out the psychiatric hospitals, uh, sent over, you know, as that character said, he basically took a shit <laughs> in America, so and just cleared out all his stuff. Had Castro let go of political dissidents, that would have been great. But these were like criminals. These were not. No, these were criminals. These are, the, he he didn't empty political prisons. He didn't he didn't empty those out. He he emptied out the the ones that they didn't want to keep. Is who wants them? These are criminals. So obviously that affected Miami for the negative. Well, oh. yeah, it, it did have, and 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 I and I, and I want to make clear. I mean, it wasn't everybody that came in Mariel was a criminal, and even those that were imprisoned. You know, sometimes. You know, you had somebody who was in prison because he he killed a chicken to feed his family, or he stole you know he stole some food or something like that, or he was caught buying and selling on the on the black market to be able to 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 support his family. Mm-hmm. So you know, there you had people like that. But yeah, I mean, I was here in Miami when it happened. I you know they came and there was a lot of bad people, a lot of bad people that came, but there was also a lot of good people. And it took a little while to sort them all out. Uh, it's become one of the, uh, and I think they just had the, the, would it be the 40th anniversary of it, of Marielle. And it, it basically, you know, one of the more successful refugee classes, for lack of a better term, uh, in the U.S., they've really come into into their own in, in terms of success and, and how well they've been able to do in this country. If you're still in an 80s mood, a couple of episodes ago on 242, we discussed pranks and body fluid mishaps. Or if you're interested in more of Cuba's history, Alberto de la Cruz is a frequent guest on In the Corner Back by the Woodpile, specifically the series Amplifying the Muted Voices of Cuba, the most recent installment being 234, where we talk about the 13th of March tugboat massacre, the Alien Gonzalez saga, and the mutual admiration of the Cuban dictatorship and the leaders of Black Lives Matter. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile is produced by A Closet, A Pocket, and A Suitcase. You can find this podcast on iTunes, podbean.com, Spotify, and Stitcher. If you would like to send us some love letters, you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. We'll see you next week. Whoa. Bye-bye.